Very good. My name's Tim. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you for having me. Good to see lots of cameras on. Sometimes in this age of Zoom, one's talking to a bunch of dead squares and it's very hard. Uh, so I like to see people's faces. It's very, very helpful. Uh, my date of sobriety is the 24th of July, 1993. Um, so I'm coming up to 30 years now. 30 years physically sober. <laughs> Uh, there's a meeting around the corner here where they say they came for the drinking and they stayed for the thinking. I'm still here for the not drinking bit of the program. Anything else is a bonus. Um, sometimes people fall out of the bottom of AA and sometimes people graduate out of the top and sometimes people slide sideways. I don't want to do any of those. So I stay firmly with the basics of AA. Uh, I've been asked to talk about step four, and one of the difficulties, if you inhabit, as I do, a part of AA, and I do Al-Anon as well, but we, we don't talk about the big book in Al-Anon, at least not officially, uh, in the part of AA that I attend, people are very, very keen on the programme, which is very good, and they're very keen on the big book is very good, very nice, wonderful. But everybody always gets terribly excited about doing a step four. I've got a problem. I know, I'll do a step four. Um, I think it was Clancy that would refer at times to inventory in AA becoming a socially acceptable form of self-obsession. Before I get into step four, therefore, I want to present what my view of its role is in the AA programme. And also a tiny bit of history. Uh, when you read Bill's description of his own passage through the steps, when you read the descriptions in the big book of those who are sponsored by Dr. Bob, what they did was not what ended up being written down. Um, the process was very brisk indeed, compared to the weeks and sometimes months we take over things today. Now, a, a disarmingly large proportion of the first so-called 100, people argue about the example, get Jay in to talk about that, uh, died drunk. And I think we're right to be thorough. I think more thorough now than people have ever been in AA. But the danger is becoming so focused on the minutiae of getting it right that one forgets what it's all for. Um, and sometimes I, I'm off put by the glee and relish with which in some parts of AA people talk about inventory, so glad to get back into inventory. Um, and always writing reams and reams of paper after 10 years, after 15 years, after 20 years, and the paper's still being produced. 
If it works for you, fine. But it's not my cup of tea. There are 12 steps, and step four is just one of them. I'm going to talk about its position in the steps before talking about how I do it. So the problem that the steps are there to solve, uh, the problem is alcoholism. Not the, my unmanageable life, it's my alcoholism. And when you see alcoholism close up, especially after you've been sober for a while, it's amazing how it continues to shock. You think you're used to it. You think you've got the hang of it. And then you see it wreaking havoc in someone in their life, affecting hundreds, hundreds of people around the alcohol. Um, and it's chilling. It's chilling in particular. Because once the touch paper is licked, once they've started drinking, there's nothing anyone can say or do to stop them. The process continues until death or institutions or a rare stroke of luck. That luck can't be constituted manually. One can't press a button and make luck happen. Provident, fate, or God's intervention. I'm always very hesitant to say that God intervened because it does elicit the question, well, why did God intervene with this person and not the other person? So I, I don't think I can know whether God intervened. What I do know is that for me to have another drink would be a catastrophe. I also know that the drink, as it were, starts way before the drink. Alcoholism starts to act within me as an alcoholic days, weeks, months and years before striking. It gets all of its pieces in place and then it strikes. The way it would work for me, and I've seen this in other people as well, it retells my own story back to me in such a way that a drink seems like the only way out of my situation. I've seen other people do that with uh, certain types of medication which may be legitimately prescribed, fine, but some alcoholics don't react well to certain types of medication. I'm not going to go into details on that. You can do the research yourself. Uh, it does it in a thousand ways. The gradual retreat from AA, leaving other people to do the work, arriving a little bit later, just talking to your friends, not really paying attention in Zoom meetings. It's That's the start of my alcoholism constructing a path back to the first drink. The process as well, when alcoholism is just 
scratching a little bit at the door. You think I'm all right? I'm doing fine here. I'm a little, I'm a little testy. Fine. I'm a little frightened. And then the conflict starts to arise. It's like a parliament, where, let's say, with a hundred members, where forty-eight are evil, and fifty-two are sane and good. And it's a democracy, so it's fine. The fifty-two win every single vote. But then something happens, and the evil quotient tips over the line and is now fifty-one out of a hundred. And at this point, democracy is thrown out the window, and they start shooting the other side. And then the descent is very quick indeed. The rules change. At some point, my alcoholism gets the upper hand, and the rules of the game change. There is no longer any honesty. There is no longer any reason. There is no longer any genuine rational thought. There is rationalization, which gets expressed in words, which convince some people. But it's taken over again. This is a very serious condition, alcoholism. And the only solution is for my mind to be taken offline as the chief source of, or my wrong mind, should we say. The solution is to take my wrong mind offline as the chief source of my direction. Guidance, literally as the source of what shall I do today? How should I look at this situation? What should I believe? One of the difficulties with the insanity, which is not described directly in step one on the you know the the, the one liner, it's in the book, but it's not in the one liner. It's presupposed in step two, where it talks about a restoration to sanity. It presupposes you're insane. One of the difficulties is it's not a universal insanity in the sense that, uh, you know, it doesn't mean I think I'm Napoleon or Therese of Lisieux. Uh, I can be perfectly rational and sane and sensible in all sorts of other ways, but with regard to alcohol, with regard to some other substances and behaviours. I am wholly insane, and my faculty of discerning one from the other, the sanity from the insanity, that faculty is shot. The infection spreads there too. So, have you noticed on page 86, it doesn't trust me for one moment. On awakening, God please direct my thinking. I'm not allowed to get in there at all. Uh, I'm always faced with two options, two voices to listen to. There is the ego and there is God's voice. And God's voice is quiet and patient. And always very clear, actually. Uh, when I think I don't know what God's will is in a situation, it's because I've got other plans and I don't like God's will. And the proverbial man with the banana in his ear, who complains he can't hear because he has a banana in his ear. The ego always asks first. It's clever. It's full of words. It was there in all of those a Course in Miracles classes. It knows how to use the material against me. 
So the book doesn't give me a choice here. First thing in the morning, God, please direct my thinking. The solution to alcoholism lies in serving God. What does that look like? Get up in the morning. I've got to look after myself. I've got to keep my show on the road. At the end of the day, I've got to do things which represent my appreciation of being alive, my appreciation of being on the planet. I've got to be having a nice time. I've got to be enjoying myself. There's got to be some joy in my enjoyment. Or I won't stay sober. Joy is an imperative. It's not a tack on. It's an imperative, and it's a choice. Joy is a choice. Peace is a choice. If I make the choice in favour of joy and peace, God will always show me a path. In between those two things, looking after myself and appreciating the world, in between those two lie the fulfilment of my obligations on the part of, the, of my higher power, the higher power. That's all. Uh, I get up every day. What is God's will? The list of things for me to do, that is all. There's nothing mysterious. Whilst I still have a to-do list of things to do, God's will needn't be worried about. I can get on with that. And other things are always added to the list. Usually when I'm not looking, I suddenly realise that this needs to be done or that needs to be done. And it goes on the list and the list never runs out. So I never need to work out, I've never, haven't for a very long time, needed to go out there and get things to do. Because I've placed myself uh, at God's disposal. God seems to have found things for me to do without me really having to work very hard to find them. Being busy. Very good. So where does step four fit into that? Well, the, there are some problems. Uh, problem number one is uh, resentment uh, and that while well, the whole emotional complex of resentment and fear and guilt stroke shame which so fill my consciousness number one i can't hear god's voice number two i don't care for god's voice because i'm busy i'm busy with myself and my little plans and designs When I'm full of resentment and fear and guilt and shame, I'm on autopilot and I'm run by my ego's software. So I'm just not going to do God's will when I'm full of resentment, fear and guilt and shame. I won't discern it. I won't want to do it. And I just won't be getting on with it. I am under the control of a lower power. So there's that problem. That's compounded by really some genuine confusion, some genuine uh, misunderstanding about the difference between right and wrong and etiquette and custom and how to really operate in any situation. Dysfunctional means it works, but it hurts. The way I lived when I got to AA was the only way I knew, but it was not efficient, it wasn't effective, and it wasn't harmonious. But it was the system that I had, it was the only piece of software that I had. So there's that. There are secrets. Secrets separate you. And then there's unfinished harm, which haunted me, almost literally. 
there were nightmares I had about my childhood, which I had until I made amends for apparently unrelated events in my childhood. So the purpose of the first, uh, the, the middle six steps, once I've given uh, my will and life to God, is to clear the way so that I can just get on with it. And that clearing away is radical. It's not tidying up my life for me. It is eliminating my life so that my life or the life I give to the higher power can be used for other purposes than my own. Um, sometimes when I'm sponsoring people, uh, after they've taken step three, they make the fateful mistake of uttering sentences which include the phrase, I want. <laughs> I need to work out what I want. I is the problem. There shouldn't be an I anymore. The purpose of those middle six steps is to get rid of the I. So I'm no longer the dancer in my life, I'm the danced. I am danced by my higher power. I'm object, not subject. I'm channel, not source. What has wanting got to do with anything? What it's not an inf what I want is not is it's not information. It's not informative of anything. I I don't ask myself what I want anymore about anything, because if God is good and God can be trusted, God will give me what is good for me. I don't need to, I don't need to figure anything out. Um, a frightfully hot topic at the moment in society. I don't know if anyone's noticed is identity. Everyone's very concerned with their identity and putting themselves in lots of little boxes. I don't. I don't care. Uh, this isn't a new idea. I mean, it's it's always been rumbling along. But Chuck Chamberlain talked about this. He said. I have no more concept of myself than I have of a walrus. And I wouldn't know what to do with a concept of myself if I had one. It wouldn't improve my life one iota. The the I has got to go. I don't care. There's a better life on offer than the life which has me at its centre. So those middle six steps are there to get rid of the I. Um, and the step four is the powerhouse, but it is not the end in itself. Um, and the end, there, I think there are four ends of step four. The first end is forgiveness. Now, people get very exercised about the lack of uh, the word forgiveness in all sorts of parts of the people. But what matters is the substance, not the surface verbiage. Words are symbols of symbols. They're two stages removed them from the reality. What is described on pages 66 to 67 is very clearly forgiveness. It is the undoing of anger and the restoration to a position of equanimity in the face of others' misdeeds. That is forgiveness. That is not called that is irrelevant. That is the substance. That's the first function. Forgiveness restores me to my right mind. It undoes 
the nightmare that I've painted and pasted on top of my perception of the world. So number one, forgiveness. Uh, number two, it gives me a catalogue of my secrets so that they can be told. So that I can get to a stage, I can say to them, I'm trying to think, do I have any secrets? I'm thinking, <laughs> nothing is... Nothing is occurring to me. Everything's been told. Step four provides the basis, or at least the raw material, for steps eight and nine. It provides the basis for making amends. Now, step eight requires, I think, a much more forensic analysis of what happened than step four, which is very broad brushstrokes. And I think it's right that step eight is separate. I, it, very helpful that it's separated in lots of different ways. So step four provides the basis for amends. So we've got three things so far. Forgiveness, confession, amends. And there is a fourth. The fourth is what I learn from the Questions on page 67. They're sometimes called the fourth column. I call it that out of habit, not because I think it's a, an accurate term, but we'll come to that. There are some questions there. Mistakes, selfishness, self-seeking, etc. There's a fear inventory. Uh, there's a sexual relationship inventory. And what that lays bare is a catalogue of my beliefs, my thinking, and my behaviour. And the ideal is for me to come out of that process with a simple and clear, visceral understanding of the horror that I produce when I am running my life. It's so step four is not analysis, it's cataloguing for the purposes of the disclosure in step five. Now, why do I want to look at all this material? Why do I rake over it in step four? Why did I rake over it in step four? And this is, I think, so important for me to understand. It is not so that I can use the information to reconstruct my life on a more effective, efficient and harmonious basis for me. And I'll tell you why. This is why it's not an intellectual exercise. One aims to be as accurate as possible, as honest, clear, concise, complete, coherent. But it's not academic. And it's not therapy either. It's, um, Its chief purpose, I think, is for step six and seven of that part of the step. The chief purpose is for step six and seven. So that in step six, I'm so disgusted and disillusioned. Disillusioned is a very good word. It means I had illusions and the illusions have been removed. What is the illusion? Just one. That. I can be happy and satisfied if I get my own way. 
if I get what I want. One illusion, that's all. There's no complexity in step six. If you see complexity, you've missed something. This is about pulling the lever on the whole system. This is about exiting the matrix. This is about waking up from a dream and everything in the dream is unreal. We're not horse trading individual defects. The, it's the system. All the defects are a product of the system of listening to the ego. And the ego, in case you're wondering what it is in my terms, the ego is this. It's the illusion that I'm this self-created person set up separate from God, running around in a physical body, uh, condemned to work by the sweat of my brow to get what I need in the world and charged with the task of making a name for myself to prove to others I exist and I matter. Always frightened at some level that God is going to get me for having shattered the unity of heaven. There's a definition of the ego if you want one. <laughs> Don't ask me to repeat it because I can't. At least not verbatim. Step six asks me to look at the horror and say, I'm done. Anything is better than this. And then there's a very funny thing in step seven. I don't yield up my defects in steps in step seven. I turn over to God the good and the bad. So step four is, as it were, going through your fridge and removing all of the items which are past their expiration date, or if you're British, expiry date, um, and putting them all, all in a black bin bag to be thrown out. And you get to step seven and God says, open the fridge, take all the good food out of it too, put that in the black bin bag. That cauliflower cheese you've got your eye on for Tuesday evening, that's going to go in there. The peaches you bought yesterday from the, the beautiful little farm up the road, they're going in there. The cake you made for your mother's birthday, that's going in the black bin bag. Everything is going in there. The fridge is going to be emptied. And we're going to get rid of the fridge. A whole lot goes. And God says, I'm going to feed you day by day. You don't need to worry about fridges anymore. This is why, in a sense, and this is absolute heresy in big book world to say, doesn't matter what you write in step four, as long as it horrifies you sufficiently to take the remaining steps and devote your life to helping others. And the process of helping others works out all of the kinks. Anything you've missed or misunderstood, you're gonna, you'll get to it. And bit by bit, I've gradually learned how to negotiate situations by having situation by situation presented as a real life case study. When you've got the situation in front of you, you can analyze it properly. No one, no one is a reliable reporter of what happened last week, let alone five years ago, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It's all speculative. It's all suppositious. Step four. Um, 
thing if it's done sincerely, if one asks the questions and one reports the answers that come up from within one, it's a, it's good. It will do its job. Not about a scientific accuracy. Step five certainly doesn't require analysis. It is a confession. So the actual step four itself, what does it consist in? Um, three inventories. In a sense, the first inventory is the inventory which starts on page 67. What were my mistakes? Step four. I'll explain why I'm saying that in a minute. Step four says we made a, a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. We noticed everything you're writing between 63 and 67. None of that is a moral inventory of oneself. It's a moral inventory of other people and how I've been victimized by them. The inventory actually starts on page 67. So what are those first four pages? Again, if you want to know what something is there for, look at what comes immediately after it. That's the ex that there lies the explanation. Why is step four there? Look at step five, six, seven, eight, and nine. That's what step four is for. Um, so why do we have four pages of looking at resentment? In its, and the, the book says very clearly, uh, to look at ourselves, we have to put out of our mind the wrongs that others do. We notice how difficult that is to do when you're full of resentment. You can't, you can't do the inventory if you're resentful, in my experience. At least it, it, it's like trying to walk into a headwind, like trying to run into a headwind. You can just about struggle through, but Resentment distorts my perception of the world because the purpose of the resentment machine within me is to portray me as the holy innocent victim, the holy holy innocent victim, and everyone else as the perpetrators. So the resentment project is utterly opposed to the inventory on page sixty-seven. So the inventory has to go. Uh, and it, it it's very clever, the the book I think, um, because it doesn't start off the step four saying, well, let's start off by forgiving people. It says no, let's let's have at it. Let's really rip into them. <coughs> so this person's a nut, and that person's a this, and you lay into them, and then you set out what they did wrong and then how you were affected by that. Now, it does take a little bit of skill, this third column business, not to write it so much as to understand what it's there for. And the material on page 66 makes very clear that if I'm resentful, the course of my life is in other people's hands. What they do affects how I feel. But not directly, it's mediated through something. And again, the answer is on 66. If you want to understand 65, read 66 and it makes sense of me. Page 66. 
the more we fought to have our own way. And what's very clear is if I'm concerned with those areas of self, those seven areas of self, my emotions are in other people's hands. My actions, by extension, if my emotions are out of control, my actions are in other people's hands. What are those seven areas? And people have d differing definitions of those seven areas, and that's fine. So it's not something to fall out over. So if my definitions are different than yours, then no one is right or wrong. It's just people cut the cake up differently. If you cut the cake seven ways, you still have the whole of the cake. As long as the whole of the cake is covered, you're fine. What is the cake, though? The cake is my blueprint, my plan, my little plans and designs, my self-will, my vision of what my life should look like. And it is divided into seven sections personal and sex relations, my plan for how others should relate to me personally uh, in the sexual arena and outside the sexual arena. So I've got plans and designs, demands and expectations as regards other people's behaviour. And another part of the plan is this, if they behave right, my life would be immeasurably improved. If my clients think that my work is splendid, they will give me money, pocketbooks. Uh, money will give me status, pride, what other people think. Of me. It will, uh, their confidence in me will give me an occupation. We have an ambition in there. Uh, the money will satisfy my basic needs, security, basic needs, security, ambitions, all of the wants, pocketbooks, money, pride, how I consider others view me, self-esteem, how I view myself. So a very simple thing, the desire to have my clients think highly of me affects all of the areas one way or another. And even by extension, when I was younger, it's less of an issue, mercifully. But the sexual arena, uh, if, if I'm poor and useless and don't have a job, uh, uh, how much of a catch am I going to be? So the real reason I'm resentful, and if this insight isn't, if this, the, if the penny doesn't drop on this one, the whole resentment inventory exercise is a complete waste of time. The insight is this. I'm upset not because of your behaviour. I'm upset because I have a plan for your behaviour. If I didn't have a plan, I wouldn't be upset. If I didn't have a plan for my life, I wouldn't be upset. The realisation that the course of my life, and indeed whether or not I drink, is the realisation that that is tied to your behaviour whilst I have a blueprint for it. That's my motivation for forgiving. And what is forgiveness? First of all, it's recognising that as I've understood myself, when I'm in the ego's grip, it is in the driving seat. I'm in the passenger seat. You know in The Simpsons, Maggie, who's got the little toy steering wheel with tooting the horn. She's not driving the car. That's me with my ego driving the car. I'm Maggie tooting the horn, thinking that I'm in charge. But I'm not. I'm driven. I'm not making this up, you know. Page 62 says we're driven. 
literally driven and figuratively, but literally driven. The ego is in charge. So that's true for everyone else. So everyone who misbehaves, even him or her, we all know who you've just thought of. Or you will know who you've just thought of. Each person may be someone different. Even that person is not evil. They are driven. There's a difference. That's the first insight. Secondly, not only are they driven, they're like me. Thirdly, if my upset stems from having a plan, I can be okay by dropping the plan. I do not need to change the world to be okay. I need to drop the plan. Fourthly, to extend love to these people who are trapped inside the ego's matrix. I'm to extend love to them as an act of the will. The program requires an awful lot of willpower and an awful lot of little decisions. And the decision I'm going to extend, I'm going to regard this person with love. And it gives very specific instructions on how to do that in the Bob 67. So the purpose of the resentment inventory is to forgive. And the purpose of forgiveness is to render me sober. Both literally and emotionally sufficiently for me to write accurately in response to those eight questions. Some people see four, I see eight on. And it's not because I have very focal glasses. I see eight questions on page 67. And if people use four, again, that's fine. But I find these eight questions immensely useful. First question, what were my mistakes? To simply review each of the situations which has arisen in the resentment inventory, because that needs to be unpacked, is a good place to start. Any area where there is resentment is an area where I am clearly invested and my behaviour needs to be looked at. Uh, mistakes. What did I do that I shouldn't have done? What did I fail to do that I should have done? And how am I looking at this wrong? How should I look at it instead? It's what I think in Big Book Step Study, which I'm not friends with, but I know a little bit about. I think they call that the turnarounds there. And I think that's a very good, that's very helpful, that word, turn, 180 degree turn. What's the 180 degree turn? Looking at everything from their angle, not my angle. What would the experience of me have been like for them? Sit in their shoes. Page 90 says the same thing. Uh, uh, same, same principle of placing yourself in the shoes of the other person. How would you like to be approached if you were them? So mistakes. Selfishness. What actions did I take which were in my interests uh, and overrode those of other people? What were those interests? that I prioritised over others' interests? What were those interests of other people I rode roughshod over? Self-seeking. What was I after? Now, you've already answered that. If you do a so-called extended third column, 
in the resentment inventory where rather than just writing this affects my pride, self-esteem, personal relations, sex relations, ambition, security, pocketbooks, you write a little bit behind each one of, of what was affected there. You'll already know what you are after. So self-seeking, what was my game? How did I want people to behave? What outcomes did I want? What image of myself did I want to perpetuate in my own mind and in the mind of other people? That's self-seeking. Dishonesty. Where did I lie inappropriately? Where did I conceal the truth inappropriately? Sometimes dis discretion. You see, discretion is a, is a form of lying, but it is a rightful form of lying. So the question about honesty or dishonesty must contain within it an assessment of appropriateness. One mustn't just say everything to everyone at all times. There isn't time, for one thing, to say everything to everyone. One must have discretion and know what to say. So the dishonesty question, sometimes people write, um, I didn't let him have a piece of my mind. Too right, very good. <laughs> You kept your mouth shut. Hooray for you. Was it dishonesty? Yes, but it was the right form of dishonesty. You smiled and gave them a cup of tea. You might have hoped they choked on it, but at least you gave them a cup of tea and kept your mouth shut. So dishonesty. Where did you lie, conceal or distort inappropriately? Um, and where was I self-deceived? Fear. Fear is very easy. Once you know self-seeking, all the things you're after, fear is the inverse of that. Losing all of those things, not getting all of those things. Those two questions are mirror images of each other. Self-seeking, what I'm after, what I want to keep. Fear, what I'm frightened of losing, what I'm frightened of not getting. Blame is a terribly good one. Where did I set the ball rolling? It has that idea in step four, setting the ball rolling. Sometimes there's an absolute uh, box set of a situation which runs through 22 episodes with its whole story arc. What did I do that set the ball rolling or gave it some speed? Um, fault. The seventh question, what were my character defects? Some people find using lists of just one word character defects very helpful if you can name it it takes the power from it if you can name it that means you've done something that others have done too and that's why naming is so useful it brings me into the human race because i'm now doing things which many other people Which is why there is a word for it. The seventh question gives me the material for step six and seven. The eighth question gives me the material for step eight wrongs. Where did I harm others? What? Where did I wrong others? So there, I'm isolating specifically what I did that. caused others to suffer, that compromised their interests. The fear inventory, by the time, oh, by the way, with those page 67 questions, what I'm about to say is maybe unpopular, but there we have it. Um, 
I only write, when I do an inventory, I only write about 20 people I resent. If I, if I write about resentment, maximum 20. Because by the time you've written four or five, it's the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. I then get to forgive everyone. There's no exceptions there. And if you've got 160 people to forgive, then 160 people you must forgive. Um, but I don't think I get points for repetition. What I do do with those eight questions on page 67 is I apply them systematically to the areas of my life not already covered by the resentment inventory. Money, exercise, diet, relationship with the environment, engagement in politics, engagement in the community, engagement in society, taxes, uh, financial provision for the future. What were my mistakes? Where am I selfish? Blah, blah, blah. Often the devil lies in those questions far more than in these measly little resentment situations. They're, they're the distraction. Fear inventory, I've largely done it by answering the question on page 67. But it's as well to, uh, I find very useful to catalogue and brainstorm the fears in order that I can spew them out in one go and realize that my entire life of fear can be summarized on one page. Very useful insight. And what I learned from the fear inventory is very, very similar. I'm going to cut straight to it because <coughs> there isn't a huge amount of time left. One could do an hour on each page of step four. What it turns out is that my identity, value and purpose are rooted in the material world. I think I'm a body, and that when I when my body ceases to function completely, I will die. That's a belief. That's having one's identity rooted. You think you're going to die when your body ceases. Well, identity is value is 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 rooted in the material world. If that is who you are, that's where the value is. Purpose, likewise, as if you're not here after your body dies, well, where else could the purpose be but the material world? And I don't know if you've had a glance at the material world recently, but as has been the case throughout history, there's an awful lot going on. There's an awful lot going wrong. It's not a safe place and it's not good value for money, the material world. It's a catastrophe. It's wonderful, but it's a catastrophe. It's all you've got. It's a catastrophe. Because you can be your identity, value, and purpose can be swept away at any point by a so-called act of God. Not really an act of God. You get the point. To be free of fear, I must realize one thing. I am spirit. I was never born. I will never die. I happen to be channeled right now through a physical form talking to you. It's not who I am. If my mobile phone dies, I'm all right. If, I, if my body ceases to function, I'm all right. I don't care. Why would I care? Um, my identity, my value, my purpose do not lie in the material world. They may be the venue where that purpose is played out for right now, but they're not the purpose. The 
purpose lies in consciousness and waking up and helping other people wake up. And finally, the rather distasteful sex inventory. Uh, I had a ragged history. And a busy one. And I think it's helpful with the sex inventory to group people into categories. Because boys, I mean, I, 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 I don't know about anyone else, but boy, was my repertoire limited. Same thing over and over and over again. But again, it's not about information. It's about being horrified sufficiently in step six and seven that you power through eight and nine before you even realize what is happening. Sponsor my tell, tell a little story and then I'll finish. Sponsor of mine powered through steps four through nine last year. And uh, it wasn't a technical tour de force. I don't think he'd mind me saying. We're going back and looking at some detail now, which is very helpful. <clears throat> One has the rest of one's life to look at the detail. But he completed the process very quickly. He just turned around the work every day. Huge amounts of it. As best he could. Within a week of completing his step nine, he had 12 new sponsees. He'd never had 12 sponsees in his entire recovery. And then suddenly 12 sponsees within a week. It had worked. That was my experience as well. When I completed step nine, having powered through this, uh, I went from half a dozen sponsees to 20 in a couple of months. And uh, the numbers have been considerably higher ever since. My life is full of service and sponsorship. And I seem to be able to hold down a job and a marriage as well. I don't know how. For now, fingers crossed. <laughs> Um, so that's the function of step four in a bigger context, and its purpose is to fit me to be a maximum service for God. It's not interesting in itself. Its purpose is interesting. And I want to remember what the purpose is. That's what I got. Thank you. The, okay, so where do ambitions come from? Sitting here right now, I don't want anything. I'm fine because I'm with you. There are some basic physical needs which it doesn't hurt to satisfy. So have some dinner, have a sandwich, you know, sleep indoors most of the time. There are some basic things which just really help. But that's not what we're talking about, ambitions. We're talking about wanting. Notice that the word want in English has two chief meanings it means a desire for something. Or it means lack, and they are the same thing. To desire something presupposes I'm in a position of lack, I'm in a state of lacking. If I don't lack anything, which I don't as spirit, God is permanently available. Everyone I've ever known, including those who have died, are permanently available. All of you are permanently available. If I don't lack, there's nothing to want. So to want something is predicated on an illusion that there's something 
missing and there is nothing missing. Now, what want says is it says, if I get this thing, I'll be all right. I'll be happy. I'll be satisfied. And this is the great illusion, delusion from page 61 of the big book, this idea that if we get certain things, we'll be all right. How many, I'm sure you've had it yourself, all of you, you very excited to get a new job. How excited are you about that job six months later? New car, same thing. New relationship, heaven forbid. And yet, we're stupid, very, very stupid. We fall for the same trick, the same con trick, again and again and again. Oh, I'll change this. This will be. I'll go on holiday here, then everything will be all right. And it's untrue. If I'm not all right here, I'm going to be the same sad person over there. If I'm sad over here, I'll be sad over there. If I'm sad without the job, I'll be sad with the job. Because I'm the one that creates the sadness. It's not the job. The calls are coming from within the house. I'm not being prank called by the universe. I'm calling myself and frightening myself with my own voice. So all the things I want, have you noticed as soon as you want something, you feel the lack very, very keenly. I'm sure you've come across with children. They're perfectly happy until Bobby discovers that Peter has got a new toy. And now Bobby is disconsolate because he doesn't have the toy that Peter's got. He didn't know the toy existed until five minutes ago. And now the bottom has fallen out of his life. And adults are like that as well. I don't know if you have this in America, but here on the weekends, people go to shops and they buy things and they think that when they get the thing, they'll be happy. And then they throw the thing out and think, oh, I've, I've done so well. I've thrown all the things out. I've had a really good clear out. Those were the treasures from six months ago. The things that were going to make you happy. Now you're pleased to get rid of. When I get rid of this, I'll be all right. When I've got some space, I'll be all right. <laughs> so. Wanting things renders me in a position of resentment because I haven't got it. Jealousy because someone else has got mine. Envy because I want the thing that someone else has got. Self-pity because everyone's got it except me. Fear that I won't get it. Um, disappointment when I get it. The room in the house that Harry Potter grew up in, the se Dudley's second bedroom, which is full of all the toys which have broken. It's a wonderful image. And we have I think we've all got the second bedroom full of toys which are broken, which were once the prized gift on Christmas morning. And now we have to have an extra room to put them all in. Disappointment and then despair when you realise that the plan hasn't worked. And at this point, you do one of three things. You either reconstruct another list of things to get in the world. When I get this, this I'll be all right. Or you drink. Or you go and find God. Those are the only options. Hope that answers that question. <laughs>